animals are eating the plastic and then the plastic is a way for all of those horrible chemicals to get into the food chain and then they bioaccumulate so the bigger animals have more because they're eating lots of small animals with little bits of chemicals and then a lot of the time people are eating those fish so we're now essentially eating our own trash and we're getting all those chemicals from the ocean into our personal food chain so anyone that's still eating seafood that's probably what you're eating currently which is pretty scary stuff that's eco warrior and ocean activist alice forrest this week's guest on episode 99 of the unplugged podcast Hello and welcome to another profound and powerful week of the Unplugged Podcast, where we unplug from the status quo of our cultural programming and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and activated world. This is the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly changing world. My name is Debo Zarco, warrior of truth, cultural revolutionary, and passionate lover of life here to welcome you to your bi-weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful coastal British Columbia, Canada. And this week, we delve into a very important conversation about the critical state of our oceans. Spread over an area of over 360 million square kilometers, the world's oceans cover more than 70% of planet Earth. So essentially, every single one of us lives on an island. Now, some islands are bigger than others because they, you know, they're entire continents or they're countries on their own. But with this much blue dominating the planet, we landlubbers are actually screwed without the evolution of fins and gills. And because the volume is so immense, Almost all of the Earth's available living space consists of water. Now, even if we believe that we're landlocked in places like Saskatchewan, Canada, Kansas, USA, Alice Springs, Australia, or Munich, Germany, without the oceans, we're doomed. So it makes no difference how far away we live from the oceans. And one of the great contradictions of the oceans is that although they surround us, and they make up the bulk of this planet, they actually remain the most mysterious of the Earth's ecosystems. Personally, I've actually always had a profound love for the ocean. From the time I was a little girl spending my winters in Florida, by the Atlantic Ocean with my parents and my sisters, and of course our little dog Tippy, and now living by the Pacific Ocean on the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia. Even though my landlocked birth home of Ottawa, Canada, and when I say landlocked, I mean away from the ocean. Ottawa is actually surrounded by lakes and rivers and streams and a variety of other water. There's a lot of water around Ottawa, but it's quite far away from the ocean. But for me, that's never actually made a difference. I've always still had a very, very deep and very profound connection to the sea. As we all should, because that's where we all evolved from. And this very ocean that we evolved from now seems so far removed from us today. In hardly 200 years, we have violently disrupted 4 billion years of natural history in this entire world. 
We can no longer see the beauty in life, but only how it can serve our selfish species and what it enables us to produce and profit from. Everything around us suffers from our existence. We leave footprints everywhere we go. We think that we can carry on with our friends. You have growth and consumption without any consequences. And the more our wants and our addictions and our technological distractions grow, the more numerous our machines and our technology becomes. No matter what we do, our industrial civilization is destroying the natural world around it. We spit out polluting materials in all directions, into the air, the soil, the river, streams, lake, and ocean, not to mention our hearts and minds. The oceans are the life support system for all life on Earth. And if we don't care about the oceans, then essentially what we're saying is, I don't care about what happens to life on Earth. And marine biologist and ocean explorer Sylvia Earle once said, no water, no life, no blue, no green. Now I know that I'm using tough words right now and you can probably feel the pain in my heart when I talk about this. For the last few years, I have held out an immense amount of hope for some kind of human awakening to remind us that we're not separate from the web of life. But I am seeing with the increasing collapse of our world that it's not going to happen. And so it's been bringing up a lot for me, including a shift in my message and uh, an evolution of my calling that I am still reluctant to step into because it's not cheery and it's not chipper and there doesn't appear to be a happy ending. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't live fully and completely anyways, but we need to know the dire state of our planet. We need to know the dire state of, of this one and only home that we all share so that we can navigate what may be the end of our existence with as much grace and love and activation as possible. Now back to the oceans, you know, one of the reasons why they are so, why I'm feeling so much sensitivity around them is because I know, I know how critically important they are for life on earth because they're the support system for all life on earth. And since I moved to the Sunshine Coast in the fall of 2013, I have witnessed dramatic changes to the ocean. And that is a very short period of time. And to be honest, it is both terrifying and it's gut-wrenching. The signs of collapse are so obvious. They're everywhere. And everything is accelerating. It's actually discombobulating. I feel quite disoriented by it all. And the reason for all of this is us. The greatest threat to life in the ocean and on the entire planet is Homo sapien. There is nothing and no other species that compares to our super predatory, violent, and destructive nature. And the saddest part is that that's not who we are. We learned how to be that way. And everything about our culture activates that the ugliest part of our humanity. That is the tragic thing. 
But that's not who I speak to in this show. I don't speak to the super predator and the violence and the, and the damaged ego. There are enough shows out there on TV, everywhere. You can find them anywhere. There are a dime a dozen that speak to that part of who we are, the reptilian brain. But I speak to the heart. But you see, with our consumptive, self-serving, and short-sighted cultural conditioning, we have actually become ecosystem engineers at the expense of the entire web of life. And there have been recent studies that have found that there are not any places left on Earth where humans have not impacted the planet and the ocean environment. And we discuss this in great detail today. And with a rapidly increasing human population, all indoctrinated into the same paradigm of separation and consumption, the future looks really bleak, if there is a future to be had at all. For billions of years, the oceans have played a vital role in keeping the Earth's carbon dioxide levels in check. So let's just say that the oceans keep our planet habitable. But with the rapid acidification of the ocean because of our excessive CO2 output from animal agriculture, industry, transportation, and on and on and on it goes, we have far exceeded the ocean's capacity to absorb CO2. And one of the byproducts of this excessive CO2 is that the oceans are becoming more acidic, which also means that they're becoming more uninhabitable. It's been said that the rainforest is the true lungs of the earth. But in reality, the oceans are the true lungs, heart, brain, and life force of the earth. There is no planet B, folks. The situation is dire, and to hope and buy into blind faith only aids in accelerating our collective demise. So the question of whether it's too late to save the ocean hangs in the balance, and today's show delves deeply into where we're at. And it's easy to become overwhelmed and to disengage and shut down when we look at the overall picture because it's so grim and so few people actually care. So for those of us who do care, it makes it that much more frustrating and it brings up that much more grief and pain. But what does that do? Even if it's too late, why would we choose despair, ignorance, and denial over engagement, presence, and activation? I know for myself, I'm always going to choose door number two, engagement, presence, and activation, because I am so firmly planted on Team Gaia. And I trust that if you're listening to this, you're with me too. And this week's guest is definitely right there with all of us. Alice Forrest is a passionate ocean activist, conservationist, mermaid, planeteer, eco-tramp, and adventurer. Now, with youth and optimism on her side, she has far more hope about where we're at than I do. Quite honestly, I have just seen it all go round and around and around again, over and over and over, kind of like bell bottoms, beards, and funky hats. We just keep, we keep on playing out the same old stories, just we, you know, we add a different veneer. The same old crisis in consciousness that Jesus Christ spoke about, we're still trapped in it only now with over 7 billion more humans acting it out. Now, I have to say that one of the reasons why I am speaking to you today as I am is because I've been having repetitive, persistent, and really vivid premonitions almost every night of this looming collapse. And every time I've had premonitions this persistent in my life, 
they have always come true. So needless to say, I'm paying very close attention to the dreams and the feelings in my body that are coming up and also the grief and the heaviness in my heart. And the questions that I'm now asking myself are bigger than anything that I've ever asked myself in my life. Like, who do I choose to be in the face of collapse? And how do I choose to live knowing that the sixth mass extinction event may just well wipe out everything that I care about, myself included, before the natural end of my life? And the answer always comes to me in three words. It's always the same. There's like a, a incredible consistency. These three words, activated, engaged, and love. And so starting with this show, I'm going to be exploring deeper conversations that inspire us to live more fully, more lovingly, more simply, and in a more present and activated way, knowing that collapse is upon us. It is currently playing out. And it's happening much, much faster than any Newtonian cause and effect type science scientist could ever predict. So how is it that we're going to be living with this ongoing state of uncertainty without shutting down? And this brings me back to this week's guest. Alice Forrest is a woman who chooses love and engagement to navigate this uncertainty. Alice is a highly activated Australian who is hell-bent on healing our world. She has a Bachelor of Science in Biodiversity and Conservation and is involved in a wide range of organizations and conservation activities dealing with the plight of our oceans. She combines her education with her activism. So essentially, she's uniting head with heart in the, in the most engaged and passionate and activated way. So this week we explore many topics, really important topics relating to the failing health of our oceans. Most notably, we're going to really explore the plastic pollution problem. And Alice is going to actually tell us stories of plastic being found even in the most obscure and remote places on earth. Now, in my opinion, this is a conversation that everyone should listen to. At the very least, to show that they do care about what happens to life on planet earth. So please enjoy the inspiring Alice Forrest as she shares with us why the oceans are so deeply important for life on Earth. Welcome, Alice, to this show. I'm, I'm, I mean, we've already had a little bit of a conversation to, uh, to kind of get warmed up, and I'm feeling your passion. I know you're feeling mine. We're both feeling kind of activated, and... There are 10 gazillion things that I want to talk to you about, but I'm really curious to just start with your name, okay? Alice okay. Forrest. <laughs> Alice Forrest. I want to call you Alice Ocean, but it's Forrest. So I'm really curious. Let's start with where your passion for the ocean came from with a name like Alice Forrest. Well, interestingly, my mom's maiden name is actually Woods. So <laughs> that's even funnier, there, which is pretty awesome. But uh, yeah, but I actually grew up miles from the ocean as well. So I was kind of a land-based baby. I grew up out in the country, about ten hours drive from the coast. So we used to do holidays to the coast, which I and I always loved the ocean. But I was never, I didn't grow up in the ocean, which has been interesting coming back to it now because. There's lots of things I still don't know and I've got like I'm just learning how to like read the waves and read the currents which is really exciting but I've probably been passionate about the ocean for maybe six or seven eight years now. I, like in my early 20s I learned to scuba dive and I did some volunteering 
with sea turtles just as part of backpacking, just thought they would be fun activities. And then I totally just fell in love and started learning more about the ocean and especially about how we're impacting the ocean. And that really just changed my whole life. And now I just, I don't know what I did without the ocean. (laughs) Just, I don't know what I did all those hours of my life when I didn't have the ocean there all the time. I watched one of the videos on your website and you said that you had a passion for the ocean when you were younger and then you you were afraid of it for a little while and then you went back in. I don't want to give away that story, but I'd like to explore that story a little bit more about uh, whatever the fear was that came up for you and then how you slowly made your way back and then how it's turned into this passionate advocacy and very outspoken advocacy and and on so many levels that we're going to explore later on in the conversation. But yeah, let's just, let's kind of ease into it a little bit more. I think, I don't know, I guess being a teenager, you kind of get sucked into doing teenager type things. And for a while I was just not into like younger, when I was younger, I was into animals and conservation and protecting animals. And then I kind of lost it when I was in high school and got obsessed with, you know, clothes and just fitting in with everybody. <laughs> and then it took a while to get back to doing what I really loved instead of doing what I thought everyone else wanted me to do. And I think getting back into the ocean was a big part of that. But like anything, not spending much time there, it was kind of unfamiliar. So I think it's really scary going into the ocean because when it when you don't spend much time there because it's so vast and there's so much we don't understand about it and getting in there and, you know, sometimes you have the theme track from Jaws playing <laughs> in your head and that's what you know about the ocean. That's what you're basing your knowledge on. So I think getting in there and spending more and more time and then realizing more and more how incredible it is and learning about all the animals in there and like the nudibranchs and the cuttlefish and just how incredible they are and then spending time in there and in different situations. So getting in in the surf, getting in in the really deep blue clear ocean, getting in and just having more and more experiences and then you get more comfortable and just fall more in love with it, I think, really inspired me to want to protect it the more time I spend there and the more... Yeah, the more you fall in love with things, the more you want to protect them. Of course, yeah. And and in your story, in that video, you mentioned something about you had a, a an experience with, I can't remember the type of shark, but it was it was oh, a, the bull sharks. The bull Fiji. sharks, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I went over to visit a friend who was volunteering in Fiji, and there's a dive there you can do in this little harbor where the it used to be a fishing town, and then the fishermen basically realized they could make more money from tourism, essentially. Um, What's the story? And so they've changed to shark tourism. So you can go there and they it's a marine park. It's all protected. And divers go down with a big barrel of fish basically and feed out fish to the sharks. And it's attracted them into this spot. So you can go diving there and you can see huge groups of bull sharks and sometimes tiger sharks come through as well. And so you can scuba dive and just sit down at 30 meters on the bottom and these sharks come past, which was a terrifying idea for me because I hadn't really spent much time in the water. <laughs> it's pretty deep and... Yes, it was pretty scary, but then getting down there, it was almost shocking how unscary it was, if that makes sense. Like I got there and it was just so beautiful and peaceful and the sharks are just so in control and just amazing. They're such amazing animals that you just look at them and you you don't even think about feeling scared because you're too busy just being in awe. (laughs) It was a really incredible experience. And now I just love being in the water with sharks. They're still instinctually and I think necessarily you've got to respect them there should be some fear and respect there but they're just incredible animals and they're they're not very friendly so it's an amazing experience when you get to have interactions with them and get close enough to them and really experience being in the water with a shark it's an incredible thing 
So probably like most animals, like I know that land animals, wolves get a bad rap, coyotes get a bad rap, and I'm sure that sharks probably get the same bad rap just because we're ignorant. Like as a collective, we're just ignorant. And we, when we don't understand, we become fearful of, and then we just think it needs to be destroyed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they're almost like, I guess, any animals that people think could harm them, they get kind of scared of, I guess. I know that they're other predators and they don't realize that they're, how critical those animals are. The sharks and the coyotes and the wolves, that's what keeps all the healthy ecosystems functioning. Without them, everything just falls apart. So I think a better understanding of how the environment works also really helps. So people, instead of having that fear and that lack of knowledge, understand first how amazing the animals are, but also how important they are to us even like if we don't have sharks the oceans die and then we die so it's really critical that we protect them for us i think that this is a great place to kind of segue into the direction that you've gone with your life now too and how how this this love for the ocean was kind of was was you derailed it a little bit with your teenageness which we all do right you know clothes boys whatever you know and uh or girls whatever the case may be yeah and um And then we start waking up to what's really calling us inside. And it sounds like the ocean was really calling you inside and you decided to make, you decided to study it and make a career out of it. So let's, let's go there next. Okay. (laughs) So I did, I went back to uni and I studied conservation biology and marine biology and it was great. It was awesome going back to uni as a mature age student and knowing exactly what I wanted to do. And I was such a nerd. And it was so amazing <laughs> to sit there and have people just feed me all this amazing knowledge. And I think because I was so passionate about what I was studying, it kind of paired with what I was just doing in day-to-day life. So I spent a lot of my free time volunteering and diving and doing beach cleans and whatever I could in my free time, which then kind of helped with the studies because I was learning about the ocean while I was studying. So it, yeah, it all worked really well. And then Uh, I've since finished that degree and then I'm now doing some more research, my honours, into plastic pollution in the ocean and fish eating the plastic pollution. So I'm kind of trying out the science path for a while. I kind of, I'm looking at, I think, the best way to make a difference in the world and I kind of looked at activism and I think that's amazing and really important as well and now I'm kind of looking at science and I think, I think ultimately you need everything. I think you need the whole spectrum but it's fun kind of finding where I can fit in on that spectrum and what I can do. And it's really nice to have that broad base of knowledge as well as that passion. So you've got the knowledge and you've got the passion. And when you, when you unite that, you, you become a natural activist, especially when you have that, that love for the earth and for the ocean, combine that with knowledge. And I just feel like it makes you more of a powerhouse in the world. Like that's when you can really facilitate more, transformation and when you can really speak to the plight of the oceans in a more mm, I guess in a more educated way so that people are more inclined to listen especially especially in this this uh, mind-based world you know we want the information but I think ultimately I mean you said something that's really important right at the very beginning is we need to fall in love with the earth again we need to fall in love with the oceans again and that's Mm -hmm. ultimately how we create transformation yeah Definitely. Yeah. And I think I'm really glad I went back and did more study because I learned a lot and it gave me a bit of a foundation to do more research and whatever I want to do. But it also gives me a platform. Like you said, like people listen more, which is kind of ridiculous because a lot of the time if I'm doing like 
school talks or public talks or whatever. I'm talking about things that have nothing to do with what I learned at uni. It's things I've learned out in the world with working with amazing people and working with groups. But because I have that label of I've got a science degree, people take me more seriously. So that's kind of also part of why I'm doing more research because if I put more letters after my name, people take me more seriously, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous, but sometimes you've just got to work within the system. But I think really at the end of the day, a lot of the people I learn the most from, most of them don't have degrees. They're just people who are so passionate and have spent so much time, especially with the ocean. Like you need to be out there, in there every day to really understand it. And the more time you spend in there, the more you understand it. You can't learn that from books. So I think the studying is really important. But I think, like I said, like the love is more important. I think that's the more I do in everything like research and conservation just life the more I learn it's just about you know, falling back in love with it and you want to protect it I think that's the most important thing anyone can do get outside and just fall back in love with nature and I think that that comes back to a conversation that we had before we started recording is about that's the wisdom is mm-hmm. is is all of that experiential knowledge really trumps book knowledge because yeah. then you can speak from your heart and I mean Nobody can question that. I mean, people yeah. can question book knowledge, but they can't question heart knowledge and experience because you, you know, you've been in the water, you know what's going on. And so yeah. um, that's kind of a lead into my next question is like, you said that you've, I guess, last eight years, you've been really passionate about this. Yeah. And I'm curious in that time um, with, with the, with the book knowledge and the education that you have, as well as the, um, the experiential knowledge that you have what kind of changes you're noticing with the ocean ah so many (laughs) some positive some not so positive I think actually the bad news first I think in a negative sense there's a lot of negative changes going on like there's definitely like there's just so many horrible things we're doing to the ocean right now with the overfishing and pollution plastic pollution climate change the huge one that is just too scary to think about like there's so many negative things that we're doing and I think even in the time I've been working with the ocean, you can see, like just reading the scientific literature, you can see how much things are getting worse. But there's this brilliant quote that I love that says, if you roughly, and I'm just <laughs> not word for word here, but it basically says if you look at, when people ask me if I'm pessimistic or optimistic about the future of the world, if you look at the data and you understand the data and you're not pessimistic, then you're not reading it properly and you don't understand the data. Basically, if you look at the science, then you have to be pessimistic. But if you look at the people that are fighting to make a difference and if you look at the groups and, yeah, all of the individuals who are passionate and fighting to make change, then if you're not optimistic, you don't have a heart and you don't have a soul. So basically, if you look at what people are doing, then I think you can't help but be hopeful about the future. So... In a positive sense, the changes I've seen with the ocean are more in looking at people around me. So when I first started doing plastic pollution things, we would go to like markets and fates and school talks and things and be like, everyone should have a reusable bottle. And people would be like, what? Who has a reusable drink bottle? What? I just have, I just buy a plastic bottle. And now everyone I talk to has reusable bottles. It's just a thing that people do. People just bring their own drink bottles now most of the time. Not everyone, but it's definitely getting better. And I think I see the same thing happening with coffee cups and bags. It's becoming more mainstream and it's becoming those changes are happening. And then if you look at the bigger picture, things like like the humpback whales, that's always an amazing one. Every year here we have more humpback whales coming past our coast and that's because they've protected humpbacks and those populations are increasing. And there's lots of little positive stories like that, like marine sanctuaries in Australia 
They've protected not enough, but a few small patches and made them no fishing areas, no take zones. And you can see, even in just the time I've been going to those places, how the ecosystems have recovered. And you can see like the bigger animals coming back in. The place I dive, where I used to live in Sydney, there was years of fishing there. And about 10 years ago, they made it a marine sanctuary. And I've probably been diving there for five years, maybe six years. And you can see how it's changed. Like now we have sharks that come in there. We have turtles. We have dolphins. There's been whales. And it's a tiny, tiny little bay. You can swim across it. But all these big animals are coming back in because the whole ecosystem's recovered. So right from the sea, those big predators, everything's coming back. So I think there are those positive changes and that's just what you have to focus on. I think, yeah, I'm optimistic. That's, it's, it's interesting because, um, this past summer here, uh, like I'm on the sunshine coast. You're like, I know there's a sunshine, there's a, there's a yeah. sunshine coast in yeah, Australia. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. A of hours north of here. <laughs> so I'm the, so I'm on the sunshine coast, which is north of Vancouver in British Columbia. And this past summer we experienced a really really dramatic drought, like drought and wildfire fire conditions. And I know that Australia is very familiar with drought and wildfire. And, uh, and it was really, it, it really struck me in a way that like in a visceral way that made me realize how, how, uh, how far along we are with climate change and how, yeah. how damaging, how much damage we, we've actually, we've done to the entire ecosystem. And, and it was really, it was devastating. It was really heartbreaking to witness the withering away of nature around me. Yeah. Now, what's really cool though, is like your story about how in those sanctuaries, how the ecosystem is bouncing back so quickly. That's something that I've noticed too. Like our front yard, for instance, was, it was like a hay field. It was so parched. If anybody dropped a match, it would have been torched. And it was like that all around here. And then we um, fortunately have had a rainy season, which I'm really grateful for. And it doesn't even look like a drought ever happened. And that just shows me how resilient nature can be. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we have to work within human consciousness, though. And human consciousness is, is pretty, like, it's, it's, a, it's consumptive and it's destructive for the most part. And so, yeah. But it can be changed. It can also be changed. It's, it's easier to change... Uh, uh, like a nature sanctuary than it is to change a human mind, <laughs> for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to um, talk to you about how critical the oceans are for life on planet Earth. Because I also, you know, I live, um, I live by, I, from my front window, I can see the ocean and I spend an enormous time by the ocean amount of time because, because I just love it. I love it. It's just so therapeutic. I don't spend time in the ocean like you do. Um, usually it's in my kayak or, you know, walking the dogs, but, um, I am so familiar with, with what's going on with the oceans as well, with how starfish here are disintegrating. Like they're just, they're dying. There's red tides, algae blooms that are taking out life. There's, um, sea lions and seals are starving to death. And there is some dramatic changes that are happening in the ocean. So yes, there are positive pockets of change, but on a global scale, I think that we need to really discuss the critical um, importance of life on in the oceans. Because if there's no, if there's no life in the oceans, there's no life period. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure that you can talk to that a lot better than I can. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned the starfish because um, the starfish are one of those 
pretty cool ones in that they're keystone species. So even though they look kind of small and insignificant, if you look at all the animals in the rock pool, um, they're just one of many and they're not that bigger. They're cute, but they're not that big or exciting. But they're actually the one, if you take out the starfish, the whole ecosystem collapses because they're keystone. So there's a few species like that where they're to completely critical and their role in that ecosystem in that they move around and they graze and they stop algaes from taking over the whole rock pool and things like that. Once you take the starfish out, everything else collapses. So they're a really good example of what's happening globally with our oceans. There's a lot of species that once you take them out, everything collapses. And this isn't just important because the oceans are amazing, but because, like you say, we depend on them so completely. So we live in a world where we need to breathe oxygen and that's produced obviously by photosynthesis and a lot of that is happening in our oceans with seagrass. So at least half of the breaths that we're taking are produced in the ocean. So at least half of the air we're breathing is being created in our seas and I think that's not really something we want to mess with. We often think of like the Amazon of the lungs of our planet and I also think we need to protect the Amazon and protect those lungs but the ocean is really the blue heart and the lungs of our planet and it's really, really important that we protect it for ourselves. I also think because just the ocean's amazing, <laughs> we should protect it. But just from a human level, like for the people we love, that's yeah why we need to protect it. And it is in a lot of trouble. So the plastic pollution that I study, I think is the most terrifying to me because we really are just choking our oceans in plastic. Every piece of plastic ever produced still exists. Like plastic doesn't go away. There is no way. And a lot of it's ending up in our oceans. So that is a big one for me. Um, but Oh, there's just so many oceans. Like if you look at it on Big Sound, I don't know how it survives. But the cool thing about life is that life always survives. So at the end of the day, the oceans aren't going to die. Like they're, they're going to change. So they won't be these beautiful, welcoming places that we love. They'll be full of jellyfish and sludge, basically. But certain animals will still be alive. There's always life. If you look at the volcanic little hot spots on the ocean floor where you have this incredibly sulfuric, really hot water erupting out of the bottom of the ocean. There are animals that live there that actually thrive in those really hot, really salty conditions, which you just can't even imagine being conducive to life, but things live there. And it's like that everywhere. Anywhere you look, you will find life. So life is going to continue regardless of us. But I think the place we're at now is looking at our role in that life like are we going to be a part of it are humans as a species going to still be alive and I think that's the pretty crazy thing especially with oceans like we can become caretakers and people that are part of this system or we can continue as we're doing consuming and taking and destroying our habitat and the other habitats and eventually we'll wipe ourselves out we'll probably take a lot of amazing things with us but life will go on in its own way. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely and that's I mean what you say is so pertinent right now because I'm Okay, this is this is really interesting because when I was born, I was I'm probably a lot older than you are, <laughs> but, not we a have, lot. but we have the same passion. It's a young face. <laughs> well, I was born in 1963, so that there you go. So, and there were only 3.2 billion people on the planet at yeah. that time. So, in 50 short years, like when you think about that timeline. Like I, I look at myself in the mirror and I go, oh my God, like I'm, I'm over 50 now. I don't feel like it. Like I feel like you and I are like totally on par here. Yeah. We got the same <laughs> passion is timeless. Exactly. So in 50 short years, the, the uh, number of human beings on this planet has more than doubled. So now we're at like almost 7.5 billion. 
And honestly, I mean, I, I think I came out of the, no, I, I don't think I, I, I know that I came out of the womb just loving this earth. And I was already devastated as a young child to witness how people were trashing the planet. I mean, I was one of these kids who was always picking up after everybody else. And I was always frustrated. Why am I always picking up the garbage after everybody else? Why can't they do this themselves? I never understood that. And since I've gotten older, I still do that. Like I still pick up after others, but now the problem is exponentially worse because there's so many more people to, you know, to the point where, as you and I have discussed, we, we have single-handedly managed to bring the entire ecosystem to the brink of collapse. Yeah. And I feel like every new child birthed into this world is, is infected with the same consumptive consciousness from the generations that preceded it, meaning that the consciousness of, of separation from the natural world is being more deeply embedded into the human psyche with each new generation that comes. Yeah. Now, on that same note, I also realized that there is a, a grassroots movement, the people that you're talking about who are making change. And, and this grassroots movement is emerging from people like ourselves who are actively engaged in, um, in bringing information like these conversations into the world. And also we're actively engaged in just loving the earth and, and the yeah. ocean, you know, I mean, well, the earth is the ocean. And so I feel like if we can continue doing what we're doing and bringing these conversations into the forefront of consciousness, it inspires the potential for critical thought so that people can act in more in alignment with their essential nature instead of what they've been conditioned. And that way they, they act more in alignment with the earth and with life. But you know, like, I don't want to get to, I don't want to, I don't want to get caught, caught up in false hope because currently the exponential rate of unconscious overpopulation and unconscious consumption is rapidly outpacing any potential for a miraculous consciousness shift. Definitely. So like, I don't really think that we're going to wake up on mass. I, I don't, uh, I feel, I feel like it's kind of too late to stop the runaway train of destruction. And I recently read something and you probably know a little bit about this, but I recently read that there's like a 40 year lag time between when we experience the effects of our consumptive choices and how they actually play out. So what that means is that right now, right now in 2016, we're only experiencing, we're just now experiencing the effects of our collective choices from the 1970s. So when you look at it that way, it doesn't really paint an optimistic picture. Yeah, definitely. So for myself, like recently, and it's coming more into my consciousness, I'm experiencing something that I call Gaia grief. So it's like, um, I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Joanna Macy, but she talks, okay, so she talks about planetary anguish or planetary grief. And I feel like people like ourselves who aren't afraid to know what the truth is, um, when we know how irreparable this damage is, it's, it's difficult to navigate. And so like, I find that for myself, I, I waver between acceptance of what's going on and just a deep pain in my heart that never leaves. But because I care so much, I'm feeling an even deeper connection with the earth. And this goes back to this, this loving, you know, have to fall in love with the earth that we were talking about. And I feel like my, my personal relationship with the earth is seamless. So not only do I feel like without getting too woo woo, 
but I really do feel like I'm, I'm, I'm at one with the earth. Like I feel like that connection really is there's, there's no separation. And so I'm at a stage in my life where I feel like I know that the earth is dying in a way that it's not, it's hard to describe. It's like you say, life will continue, but it's going to be permanently altered. Like we have altered it. And so it's dying in a way that is bringing about a lot of unfamiliar mm, problems for us. Yeah. So, you know, like I, I'm not, I believe that it's, it's important to hold on to some degree of hope without getting caught in false hope, I guess. I mean, I want to feel hopeful because there's people like yourself out there, people like myself, people like Nicole, there's good people out there who are doing really wonderful things. And is it enough at this 11 and a half, you know, it's not even the 11th hour, it's 11 and three quarters hour right now. Is it going to be enough? Like, I feel like the miracles that, that potentially exist in our own lives uh, are in our own lives. And I feel like it's, it's incumbent upon us to, to share them. So like the miracles that you were just talking about, like, oh my God, this ecosystem is coming back so that we don't feel isolated alone in our grief for what's happening in the world. And honestly, even if it is too late, even if it is a hundred percent too late, I can't not care and I won't not care and yeah. I would never, ever abandon anyone that I love, including the earth. So without numbing out with false hope, with that sense of, you know, oh, everything's going to be okay and everything's going to bounce back. I'm curious mm-hmm. to know how you navigate the reality of the, the dire state of the oceans because you're in them, you're immersed in it, yeah. and you know all of this knowledge, especially with the plastics, which we're going to explore next. I'm, how do you navigate the reality of the of the the dire state of this planet and stay engaged and grounded in action? Because I think that this is a key point for a lot of people um, who listen to this show. And you know, maybe when this show is shared, for those who are who are feeling this grief, mm-hmm. so that they don't get into hopelessness and despair, how they still stay engaged in in action? How do you do this? That's a really good question. I think it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, a lot of time talking about with other people who are on the same sort of journey, trying to protect what we can. And I think that it's really easy to get caught up in the depressing side of things, especially, um, well, just knowing the facts can be really depressing, but also it's really easy to get angry and caught up in like anger and despair. And it's hard, like it kind of motivates you with that anger, but I think you can't sustain that in the long term. So I think there's a few things that keep me hopeful, even in the face of yeah, the massive overpopulation and all the problems. Um, and a, that's kind of, firstly, the kids. I think kids, like so that even though they are brought up with this past consciousness that we're enforcing on them of consuming and having all of these false ideas of what they need to do to have a good life, like buying all this crap and, <laughs> yeah, everything that's wrong with the world. But they inherently are attached to nature. Like if you look at kids, they inherently, they understand what's going on. They just get it and they're taught this whole other way of living. But if they're given the opportunity to just do what they know, which is like they they respect animals, they respect nature, they want to protect it. So I think kids inherently have that. We just have to help them to grow up and keep it basically. Plus I think- It's bypassing the parents. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Skip the parents. They're a lot of (laughs) people. 
But I think also, even with the parents, most people are just lemmings. Like, I think most people are not that conscious. They're not that switched on. Most people just follow blindly along with what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you don't have to have that huge consciousness shift to make a difference. You just have to reach a few people, maybe a few people in power, but also enough people to start that change. And people will just follow along, like the bottles. Like, a few people get the reusable bottles because they know that it's important. Everyone else goes, oh, other people have got reusable bottles. I'll get one too. And then soon everybody has one. Like, it's what's happened (laughs) To create this society, except in a negative way. So people have said, okay, everyone else is doing this and buying a house and trying to get a fancy car and spending all my money on buying crap. So they're all doing that. But if you just get enough people, that critical mass, I guess, but I don't know what that number is or how you do it, but it's something I'm still trying to figure out. But you don't need everyone. Most people are lemmings and they'll just follow along. That's something (laughs) my mom told me. Don't just be another lemming. Um, So those keep me hopeful. But I think at the end of the day, it's just a choice. Like you can choose to be angry and depressed or the depression, I guess, you can't really choose, but you can choose instead to focus on the positivity. So it really hit home for me a few years ago. Uh, I went over to Japan with Nicole. That's right. Oh, that's where I met Nicole in Japan. Uh, we went over to Taiji, which was made famous in Rico Barry's documentary, The Cove. So it's the place where they herd the dolphins in. They pick out the pretty ones, they sell those to aquariums, and they slaughter the rest. Um, the meat is eaten sometimes, a lot of it's chucked out. Um, so it's a really horrific place. And I saw the documentary and I wanted to help, so I went over there. And there's really not much you can do. Like we were documenting it and filming it and trying to raise awareness about the issue, but it's it's a pretty horrible, it's definitely the worst thing I've ever seen. And it's it's a pretty difficult situation. Like the change really needs to come from within and there wasn't that much we could do there, which was really hard. Um, but that motivated me in the short term to be really passionate about saving dolphins, saving the ocean. And it, I, it's almost a manic energy you get from that kind of anger where you just want to fix everything right now and you just have to make a change. And I was just doing so many different things and volunteering all these groups and doing all these events and it was just... I think without even realizing it, I kind of burnt out. And I was always talking to people like, no, I'm not going to burn out. I'm so motivated. Like, this is what I'm so passionate about. But it was just too much and you can't sustain it. Mm-hmm. And then no, the year before last, I went to Tonga with a friend of mine um, to help him do some work there, setting up a database for the flukes, for the whale shots, and also just to spend some time with the whales. And he took me over there and we went swimming with the whales there. So they carve in Tonga. And so the mums and the calves are hanging out there for months. So you can go and just get in the water with them basically and go snorkeling. And they're just hanging out. So you find whales that are really relaxed and you get in the water and they come up to you and you have these beautiful interactions. So I had just some of the most amazing times of my life. And these baby whales come over to you and you just dance with them. There's no better word for it. You just dance with them and you're diving down and you're mimicking each other and you're just, it's just incredible. And you get these really amazing interactions where you're just looking right in their eye. And I had this one moment just with this baby whale where we just had just this amazing connection. So, you know, when I go woo on you, but you just have those moments where it just feels like the whole universe stops almost and it's mm-hmm. just so beautiful. And so I came up from that and I was like, right, I'm motivated to spend the rest of my life trying to protect the ocean just for that one baby humpback whale. And I feel like that one moment even, just that one tiny interaction was a million times more motivating than all of the dolphins I saw being killed or every time – you see trash on the beach or every horrible image that you see of like a turtle tangled in a net or all those horrible, depressing, real, real images, but Mm -hmm. really saddening images. 
I think that one positive interaction was so much more motivating to make me want to make a change. So I feel like at the end of the day, what motivates me is just trying to keep having those moments. So I spend as much time as I can getting in the water, going out hiking, going and finding waterfalls and just trying to find that connection with nature. And I feel like that is much more motivating than getting bogged down in the reality. I think it's important to understand what's going on and it's really important to have that knowledge and know the facts and know exactly what's happening to our planet. But I think that's not what you should be focusing on. I think you should be focusing on the amazingness of what still is here and what we can protect and what we can do. And it's really empowering to focus on what we can do instead of what we can't and what we've already lost. Mm. So I think that's what I try and focus everything on now. It's that same thing coming back to protect what you love and just get out there, love it. Hang around with positive people I think makes a big difference as well. I find if I hang around with people that are really angry, then I become more angry. But if I hang around with people that are positive and just trying to do that same mentality of doing what you can, not focusing on what you can't. So just making those little changes in your life that you can make and protecting what you can, then that's all you really can do. And that's the most empowering and positive thing you can do. That's the only way to do it really. You know, you've said so many really powerful things. And as a matter of fact, just before our conversation, I was having, uh, I was sitting with my partner, we were having tea and we were talking about um, just, you know, navigating what's going on in the world. And I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of crap that's going on in the world and it's easy to get sucked into that. Yeah. Unless, you know, unless you're conscious enough and it's like, oh, no, that doesn't feel so good. You know, I want to, I, I, it's like, okay, I'm aware of that now. I don't need any more information because I think exactly. that we can get stuck in the minutia of it. And then our mm-hmm. minds want, they want it, they just latch on. It's like, I want to know more. I want to know more. And that can take us down this, this, this downward spiral of negativity and hopelessness and despair. Yeah, exactly. But you described exactly what we were talking about. And what, uh, what I call them now is transcendent moments. And it's, it's a term that actually that I, I discovered in a book that I read by Mary Piper, who I had on my show a little while ago. I'll send you the link for that afterwards. Yeah. Awesome. Um, she talks about, uh, she was working on the Keystone pipeline, which is huge here. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that in Australia, but it's it's just this, it's, it's all about oil. So that just says enough right there. Familiar with that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's awful and it's it's Canadian made unfortunately and it's but it's infecting the US and it's probably going to infect everywhere else but so she was in she was a uh, in somewhere uh Nebraska she's in Nebraska so one of those states there then she was fighting against the Keystone pipeline going through all of the grief so all of the grief that uh, Joanna Macy talks about which I think is really important because we can only grieve what we love right and if we're not if we don't grieve then we're not loving enough so and if we're not grieving what's going on in this world then we're disengaged yeah. it's just the the key is like you said not to get stuck in it it's like to yeah. feel it to know and to experience it all and then to seek out those transcendent moments so whether it's by a waterfall or in the oceans or with a whale, wow, <laughs> you know, or whatever the case may be. Like I find that every night I need to go out and just sit under the stars with one of my dogs. And I'm just blown away by the magnificent beauty of, of the stars and the moon and, and everything that's just, everything that is, is just this universe. It's just, and yeah. these transcendent moments seem to be more important now than ever. And that is what drives me to keep coming back in front of this microphone and talking to people like you. 
so that I can bring these conversations into the forefront of consciousness. And it doesn't matter whether it's too late or not. I can't not do it because the love trumps everything else. And so, so I, I, I'm really, I'm so grateful that you brought up the, the, like I said, transcendent moments because they're so sacred and they really do motivate you in a way that brings you back to a hope. Even if it's just a sliver of hope nowadays, that's enough to keep getting us out of bed and, and living purposefully and in an engaged way and in a way that's activated in a way that's full of love and compassion and, and meaningful. And I think like purposefully, I think is a really key word there. It's like that really great Ralph Waldo Emerson quote about imagine if the stars only came out once every hundred years, then that night everyone would gather outside and they would watch them and religions would form overnight and everyone would just be in rapture and it would be incredible, but they come out every night and instead people sit inside and watch television. And I think (laughs) that's the really critical point here. Like it's about that consciousness and being switched on and appreciating those moments. Like if someone had just been thrown in the water with a whale and they didn't care, like they wouldn't get anything out of it. But being grateful for that moment doesn't mean you have to be in the water with a whale. You can find it anywhere. You can find it just by going out and appreciating how incredible the stars are and that we and everything else around us is made of those stars. Like that in itself is the coolest thing ever. It is. It is. Like there's a spider outside my window right now that has one of those, it's one of those leaf curling spiders. And so it's got a little curled up leaf that it's put in the middle of its web that it's living in. And it's just sitting there in its little leaf. Like how cool is that? (laughs) That that even exists just outside my window. Like there's so many amazing things that exist around us every day. And I think just finding, remembering how cool it is, this planet that we live on and how amazing everything around us is and just being grateful for that. I think is also a really great way to stay positive and stay hopeful. Just not becoming disconnected from everything and remembering how amazing it all is. That is the key. Like, um, I mentioned this on Nicole's show at the end of the show, I talked about how, uh, in, in our conversation, she told me that the motivation for her love for the oceans or one of the motivations was orcas. And, uh, I said, you know, I've been living out in BC for the last few years and this is my third time living out in BC cause I I'm originally from Ontario and have you but, seen the orcas? Well, this is what I'm getting at. So for the <laughs> longest time, I've never seen an orca and I keep hearing about all of these orca sightings all over the coast. They like to travel in the Georgia Strait and it's like, God, I keep missing them. Well, last week I was on the ferry from like the Sunshine Coast is the the geography is really interesting here. It's, it's, um, it's still considered technically part of the, the mainland. So there's Vancouver Island and, and then there's the mainland, but because the Sunshine Coast is geographically challenging with, um, with the mountain range and with all of these channels of water, the only way to access various parts of the coast is either by float plane or by ferry. So I was coming from the upper part of the Sunshine Coast by ferry to the lower part, which, which is where I live. And I'm on the ferry and I'm having one of these transcendent moments. I wasn't seeking it out. It was just such a beautiful evening. It was dusk. And you know, that time of day when you can see the sun starting to set and the moon rising at the same time, the sky was perfectly clear. It was a deep, deep, deep crystal blue. And there was a few stars that were starting to shine the mountains. Oh my God. Like I'm just, I wish you could jump into my head and just see what I'm trying to describe (laughs) the mountains. So it's a British Columbia. I mean, when you think of British Columbia, most people think of mountains and they are massive and they're beautiful. So the mountains were 
they were starting to be silhouetted because of the the, the lighting change, but the yeah. snow caps on the mountains were starting to really stand out again because of the lighting, okay. and I was like. And, and the water was flat calm and it was so beautiful. And I was just feeling so connected, just like you were talking about. So connected, so internally guided, so inspired that awe. And like, it's just that awe is, is the greatest feeling in the world. And then the captain of the ship announce, announces that there's whales off to the starboard side of the boat. And so I'm running over to the right side of the boat and I'm looking and it's like, I don't see anything. And then I look straight ahead and I see a spout and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this, that, there's a whale. There really is a whale. And it was quite off in the distance and the boat was, was getting closer and closer to them. And I started to see more spouts and the boat was like, at one point I thought, oh my God, he's going to hit them. I was getting a little concerned about it, but about 30 feet away, I saw, uh, I started to see that gentle arcing so I could see the fin coming up. And I saw the white and I saw not one whale, but a pod of six orca whales. Oh my God. Amazing. And I, I I was like, it was so, I don't know. You you can tell me if this is, if you've had this experience where that moment was so sacred that Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't contain myself. I actually had to go back to my car and I burst into tears and I was sobbing and sobbing and no content for it. It was just such a, one of those sacred moments that was so spiritually overwhelming that yeah it just it, it deepened my love for this planet even more yeah yep i know exactly what you mean <laughs> the first time i swam with the whales i teared up so much that my mask went all foggy and i couldn't even see anymore because <laughs> i was trying my mask and then just two days ago i paddled out with my housemate just into the bay here in byron and we just paddled right out the back and we saw some spouts and went closer and we thought, we, and then we were like, oh, there's dolphins. We got there. We thought we'd lost them. There was nothing around us. So we were just drifting on the big open ocean out the back of the bay, rolling over the waves in our kayak. And then they just popped up all around what? us. And it was just that, and there was probably 30 or 40 dolphins. And they were just coming up and kind of looking at us and then going back down. And they were just everywhere, like between us and to the side. And it was the same. Like I just teared up and I was sitting there in my kayak, just like full body goosebumps, <laughs> just yeah, in awe of just how incredibly beautiful nature is and just the dolphins and that interaction where they're looking at you and you're looking at them and it's just beautiful. So, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's just, yeah, that kind of magic I think that is more motivating than a million sad photos. I totally get it. <laughs> totally, totally, totally get it. And that's why I feel like it's important for people like ourselves to inspire and facilitate uh, the, the the connection with nature that, that really, um, yeah, motivates the, 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 the depth of love that you and I are talking about. Cause we, we will protect what we love. I think Jane Goodall, there's a Jane Goodall quote about that, how we'll only protect what we love. And we're so disconnected as a culture from nature that it makes perfect sense that we're trashing it. We've separated from it, but to have these small experiences and it doesn't matter. Like, I don't know how long I saw the whales, maybe two minutes at the most but it's still with me these experiences never leave and it sounds like you're you know you can relate to that too they never ever leave because they're so visceral yeah exactly and I think it is just about that yeah that disconnect I think pretty much everything you can trace back to that disconnect like the amount of people we have wouldn't have to be a problem if everyone was really connected to the earth and living in a way that other people have lived for generations Mm -hmm. it's just our real current way of living and our current 
um, what's the, like our society, the way we're living is so, it, it doesn't work. Like if you, there's this really, yeah. Have you read Collapse by Jared Diamond? No. That's a great book. He's an anthropologist and he wrote Guns, Germs and Steel is his probably most famous one. It was also a documentary series, but he writes in Collapse about all the different human civilizations that have collapsed throughout time. And a lot of them survived for longer than our current civilization. And it's something I hadn't really thought that much about. Um, Cause I guess I always thought humans are just going to wipe themselves out. But you read this book and you look at like the Easter Island populations and how they cut down all their trees. And then there was no trees left. And so everybody ended up basically dying off because they couldn't survive on this Island with no trees. Cause all the ecosystems collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks at, I think it's the Anasazi in America and, um, a lot of the Polynesian voyaging groups and just basically different societies that on the mines that overexploited their resources and eventually collapsed essentially. And he looks at all of the parallels between all of those past civilizations and what we're doing now and how the collapse is pretty inevitable with what we're doing right now. But it probably doesn't necessarily mean that humans are going to completely wipe themselves out. Although I guess we have more potential to in our current civilization with things like nuclear weapons and, mm. <laughs> but it just means that the way we're living is so disconnected from the earth, it's not sustainable. But then you can look at certain groups like the Aboriginals here in Australia that survived for probably 80,000 years, they're saying now. So there's there's artifacts that it's at least 50,000, probably more like 70 or 80,000 years people lived here connected to nature and not over-exploiting it but working with nature and knowing that they were a part of that system. I think that's the biggest thing. People kind of think that we're above all the other animals and we're separate from this planet and it's there for us to use, Mm -hmm. but that's not the case. The case is that we are part of the planet. We're animals that evolved as part of this system and it's a whole functioning living system that we need to reconnect to and be a part of. Otherwise, if we put ourselves outside the system, that's where we'll stay and we'll be thrown out of the system. (laughs) That's really powerful. I've never heard it put that way, but that's really powerful. Yeah, I kind of just thought of that. It's just seems that we're kind of disconnecting ourselves deliberately and then we're going to just, yeah, and then we'll stay disconnected and we're gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, I mean, if we're going to boot ourselves out, then nature's going to say, see ya. Exactly. <laughs> I don't need to show you the door. You've already shown yourself the door. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty much what we're doing. <laughs> Now, I I would really like to, we've already touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to talk about all of your research with plastics in the ocean. Um, On the homepage of your website, you have a video of your work on, is it Henderson Island? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of friggin' nowhere. And it's just covered in litter. So I'm going to be posting that video in the show notes that people will be able to see it because it's a really powerful video. But um, let's, let's talk about... Where is Henderson Island? How you discovered that place? And what, like, I guess, what Henderson Island has taught you about the plastic problem on this earth? And then we can just explore that a little deeper. Yep, great. Um, so Henderson, like you say, is pretty much the middle of nowhere. Um, it's in the the Pitcan group. So people might have heard of Pitcan. It was made famous by the Mutiny on the Bounty, which was an English ship a few hundred years ago. I'm not good with dates, but basically this ship, um, they mutinied and Fletcher Christian took over the ship and he booted off Captain Bly and a whole bunch of crew members and put them in the lifeboat and sent them off. Then Fletcher Christian kept this bounty ship and he sailed to French Polynesia, picked up a bunch of women and then sailed around until he found this island that was so remote that he thought no one would ever find him. And then they started their own new 
colony, basically, with about 10 English sailors and about 15 Polynesians. They settled this island and they sunk the ship on this really remote, isolated place in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean. And then their descendants are still on the island today. And that in the interim, there's been a lot of big changes. At one point, everyone on the island was actually taken off um, to Norfolk Island, but then a few of them have gone back and resettled. The reason they were taken off is quite relevant. It's because they basically overexploited the island. Mm. They cut too many things down. They brought on goats, which grazed everything down. They got massive problems with erosion, which killed off a lot of their reefs because all the soil washed into the water and smothered a lot of the reefs. So basically they couldn't support populations on the island anymore, um, and so most people were moved off. So there's now only about 47 people living on Pitcairn Island, um, but it's one of those weird tourist destinations. A lot of tourists go because it was quite famous with the mutiny. Mm-hmm. And there's... So Pitcairn is settled with 47 people. That's the nearest populated island to Henderson, which is about 200 nautical miles or about two days, I think, it took this on a ship to get there. So we had to fly from Australia to New Zealand, then fly from New Zealand to Tahiti, then fly from Tahiti to some of the outer Polynesian islands, Mangareva, um, the Gambia Islands, and then we got a ship from there for about four days via Pitcairn to Henderson. So that gives you an idea of how remote it is. It's Really a bit of a mission. That's a heck of a trip. Yeah, it was so fun. So we ended up on this island and Henderson is actually uninhabited. No one lives there. In the past, French Polyne- uh, yeah, Polynesians, not French Polynesians, Polynesians used to sail there. So about 700 years ago, um, they actually were settled on the island for some periods, but there's no fresh water on the island. So no one could really live there long term. But they did introduce rats onto the island as a food source in case anyone got shipwrecked there. And the rats are still on the island today. So the reason I was sent there was part of a team of scientists who were studying those rats and also the birds on the island because it's a really important bird colony. So the island is actually UNESCO World Heritage listed. It's also, if anyone's read Moby Dick or seen that new movie, In the Heart of the Sea, so they actually, the the actual Moby Dick boat, the whale ship Essex, they got shipwrecked on Henderson. So after their boat got sunk by the whale, they ended up on Henderson Island and that's where they regrouped and went off. So... It's a pretty incredible place. It's in a lot of modern literature, but it's not somewhere anyone has really been. Not many people have been there at all. A few groups of scientists, and that's pretty much it. So we were really, really lucky to be sent there. There were seven of us, so two people from Pitcairn and five scientists, and we were dropped there with enough supplies. So we had to take all of the fresh water. We took a water collection kit, but we had to lug about 3,000 litres of water up the beach into our campsite, which is a mission, plus all of our food and all of our camping supplies and everything to keep us on the island for three and a half months. So then this wow. oh, so you, lived there. Okay, so you got a really good taste of it then. Yeah, yeah. So we lived there in our little tents for, yeah, over, we, it was supposed to be about three and a little bit months, but then the ship coming to pick us up actually broke down. So we got stuck there for longer than intended. One of our crew members, um, Jen, she actually missed her wedding. She was planning to get married in Tahiti the week after we got off the island and we got stuck there. So she missed her wedding. Um which actually worked out really well because then we all got to go to her wedding because they had to postpone it. <laughs> so we all turned up in our dirty field clothes. Or clothes. It was a really fun wedding. That's reality. Um, <laughs> so stinky. But, yeah, so it's a really remote place. It's not near anything, but it's incredibly beautiful. It's got a whole bunch of endemic birds that aren't found anywhere else, plus hundreds of millions of nesting seabirds, um, all sorts of frigates and boobies and petrels and it's it's an amazing amazing place just really untouched um 
it's a raised coral atoll, so it's all limestone. There's one little beach or two little beaches, one on the north and one on the east, and we were camped on the north beach, and we would trek over to the east beach occasionally. It was about half a day's trek, um, and most of our research, research was limited to the northern tip because it's so densely forested you can't really get anywhere. So it's, yeah, it's not inhabited. It's not isolated. It's very rugged. There's nothing near there, but on the eastern beach, the whole beach is plastic, basically. It's just covered in plastic. So, um, yeah, look at, if people look at the video, that's a good place to see it because I can't really describe the amount of plastic on that beach. It's just heartbreaking. And it's all getting washed in. So Henderson Island is at the southern tip of the South Pacific Gyre. So there's five, five major ocean gyres, which are basically just circular currents. So it's the ocean currents meet and they make like a big like a plug hole essentially, mm. so a big rotating current, and there's five of those in the world. The most famous probably is the North Pacific, and people might have heard of it because it's the North Pacific Garbage Patch, mm -hmm. it's commonly called now, or um, the Floating Trash Island. It's got all sorts of different names. So because these currents are circular, just like when things are going down the sink, all of the trash tends to collect in those areas. And Henderson is at the very southern tip of the South Pacific Gyre. So a lot of the plastic on the east beach is getting washed down in the currents and it's getting washed up onto the beaches. So we did a lot of sampling while we were there, just like collecting and counting the plastic and we'll be publishing a paper on it this year. But it, looked, it was basically there were millions and millions of pieces of plastic on that beach and not just the surface layer. We also dug down and it was like a really depressing archaeological dig where it was just layer upon layer of plastic mm. in the beach. So it's... It was. It really brought the problem home for me because I've done a lot of work with plastic pollution. I've done ocean trawling where we tow a trawl behind a boat and look at how much plastic is floating on the surface and I've done a lot of beach cleans and underwater cleans. But seeing somewhere like this that's just so far from everything was just really heartbreaking to think that there's probably other places like that all around the world and also we pick up the rubbish on our beaches here and we don't see it. So I think it's really easy to underestimate the problem, but mm -hmm. having it just full on in your face like that, yeah, it was pretty terrifying. So a lot of plastic and just a lot of different plastic, like toothbrushes, cigarette lighters, bottles, bike pedals, Lego pieces, a lot of fishing gear, but just all sorts of different things that people would just use every day and not even think about the fact that those products are going to last forever and where they're going to end up. Mm -hmm. on the beaches or in our oceans a lot of the time and that's our that's a problem with this consumptive disposable mm -hmm. mentality that mm -hmm. we're all conditioned to believe is real and and so you know i i'm curious you know there's this, i'm sure that a lot of the people listening to this show are very conscious i know as a matter of fact that they're very conscious and they think about these things they think more critically and I know that um, for myself, I am so aware of the plastic, the plasticization of this earth. Like even going to the grocery store to buy a bag of rice, for instance, like everything is plasticized. Yes, you can get it yeah. in bulk and, you know, we do what, whatever we can to buy in bulk and we have our own um, mesh bags that we put everything in. Awesome. But you have to be incredibly conscious to do this. Most people, even the conscious people will go, you know, I'll buy a bag of this or I'll buy a bag of this. And I look even at our own garbage and I would have to say that we don't generate a lot of garbage, but the bulk of our garbage is plastic packaging and yeah. we don't buy that much. And so with that kind of awareness, 
even when we think we're being careful with our plastics, when we're sorting it and we're recycling it and we're disposing of it properly, which I say in air quotes, you know, the stuff that can't be recycled and, and has to go into the trash. I'm curious to know how so much of this ends up in the ocean. I think just because of the sheer amount that we produce, uh, it's pretty much it. So it's estimated that about 8 to 9% of all global oil production is used to make plastic. So kind of links back to that whole fossil fuel, climate change, everything, mm-hmm. it's all connected. But we're using huge amounts of non-sustainable resources to make this plastic. And we're producing, I think in, t- in the early 2000s, it was something like 240 million tonnes a year, I think just in the US, were being produced. So of this less than, at most, in the very most efficient countries, 30% of it is recycled um, at most. In mm-hmm. most countries, none of it is recycled. Some of it maybe, um, but it's not getting recycled. So at best, it goes into landfill, which is us digging giant holes and sticking our trash in there and just leaving it. So that, mm-hmm. like just the basic facts of how landfill works, you can just see that it's not a sustainable solution. That doesn't work. So mm-hmm. not to mention problems of being leaching out and spilling out of landfill. That's another whole issue. But landfill is not a solution. Um a lot of it blows out of landfill, out of garbage. It blows out of trucks. It blows, even if we try and dispose of things properly, like an overflowing bin. If everyone has an overflowing bin and one piece of trash blows out, that's still millions of pieces of trash. Like there's just mm-hmm. the sheer amounts of that we're producing and using every day. Only a tiny amount of it needs to get out of our hands and it's in the ocean. So all rivers lead to the sea, all the drains eventually lead to the sea. So basically a lot of it is ending up in our oceans. So they've been doing studies trying to quantify how much is in our oceans and a study that was published last year uh, estimated there's at least five trillion pieces of plastic just in the top 10 centimeters of our oceans. Oh my god I mean you can't even fathom what the number trillion is how many zeros that is. Yeah yeah (laughs) it's insane and the scary part is plastic is not biodegradable so in the past, I do a lot of work like in the South Pacific and in developing countries and all of their trash, they either burn it or they just throw it in the water, basically. They throw it in the river or they throw it in the ocean. And that's because for generations, that's been fine. You throw your coconut husks or your banana peel or anything else in the water or even burning it and it, it's not a problem. But plastic will never, ever go away in the ocean. So if you're throwing it in or it's blowing in accidentally, it photodegrades. It doesn't biodegrade, which means it just breaks into small pieces. Mm-hmm. So what this means is even if we're not seeing big pieces floating around, all those big pieces eventually disintegrate into lots of tiny pieces. They think now that it might even get to the molecular level. So it never goes away. There is no away. And I think that's what it always comes down to with people and rubbish. Like every time you buy something wrapped in plastic and it becomes your responsibility, essentially, that's it. It's never going away. It's at best going in landfill. It's possibly ending up in the ocean and then it's there forever so basically there's no way to clean it out either a lot of the time um when people learn about how or the extent of the plastic problem they say things to me like oh but have you heard about like this kid in europe who's invented this cleanup device um and i think so it's boy and slide he invented this manta machine essentially that filters the ocean water and they're currently running trials of it and maybe it will work but at the end of the day if you have plastic that's the same size as plankton which is the basis of the food chain there's no way to scoop that out the extent of the problem is so big we can't just scoop it out there's no getting it out of the water so um and in certain places like the north pacific there's studies done there 
that show that there's up to 36 times more microplastic than plankton in parts of the ocean there. So 36 times more plastic pieces than food. So there's no way we can get it out. So what it continually comes back to is the more you learn about the plastic issue is we've just got to stop the production and consumption. So that makes it an individual conscious choice, but it also makes it the responsibility of the governments and the companies manufacturing these products. So it needs to be tackled on every level. There needs to be better legislation to prevent things from being manufactured out of a material that lasts forever mm -hmm. and then we're using these products for a few minutes. But there also needs to be consumer responsibility. So every time you buy something in a plastic bottle, you're giving that company your money and saying, I think it's okay that you're manufacturing this bottle that I'm going to use for a few minutes that lasts forever. Same with plastic straws and bags and coffee cups. Like every single choice we make is a vote for or against that industry essentially. So every choice we make when we're shopping is choosing to support or not support it. So it's just making those small lifestyle changes I think that are only get, the only thing we can do that will make a difference. Not to mention the pollutants, which is another whole terrifying issue which I've been looking at recently. So like every plastic bottle that you use, the squishiness that like it's not a hard plastic, it's a soft plastic and that's because of additives that they've added after the plastic manufacturing process to change the nature of the plastic. Because they're added after, they're not as tightly bound and they can leach out of the plastic. So that's why like in Europe now, BPA is illegal. That's an additive that helps plasticize or soften the plastic. And it's illegal because it's a known endocrine disruptor. Mm -hmm. It's known that that will mimic hormones in your body and change how your body functions. And there's also so many links to just carcinogens and all of these horrible chemicals that are put into plastic. Like think about all the plastic products in your house and think about what you know about what's been put into that plastic. We know nothing. Um, and the companies know, but they don't really care because they're making a of lot course. of money. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so it's, it's really terrifying. The more I learn about the pollutant side of the plastic pollution industry, the scarier it is. And then adding on to that, the plastics, when they're in the ocean and they break down into small pieces, they accumulate chemicals that are already present in the water. So there's a lot of things that aren't in production now, like DDT, a lot of heavy metals, arsenic, mercury, that we aren't really using much now, but they're persistent organic pollutants, which means, or POPs for short. And these POPs, when they're in the water, they they just stick around, they're persistent, and they are hydrophobic. So they prefer to be on plastic than in ocean water. So the plastic acts like a sponge for mercury, arsenic, GDT, all the heavy metals. And then when those plastics are ingested or eaten by animals in the ocean, mm. those chemicals are released from the plastic into the food chain. So they, the stomach acids help move the chemicals into the fatty tissue of those animals. So increasingly... Um, animals are eating the plastic and then the plastic is a way for all of those horrible chemicals to get into the food chain and then they bioaccumulate so the bigger animals have more because they're eating lots of small animals with little bits of chemicals and then a lot of the time people are eating those fish so we're now essentially eating our own trash and we're getting all those chemicals from the ocean into our personal food chain so anyone that's still eating seafood that's probably what you're eating currently which is pretty scary stuff yum yep <laughs> <laughs> You know, as Julia Butterfly Hill says, when you throw something away, where's away? And exactly. Ex yeah, there and no there is no away because the earth is the ultimate closed loop system. And you have just exactly. proven that with w exactly what you said. So, um, you know, this, this brings up a question here because I, I recently had a powerful conversation with a guy named Silas Rayo, and he is the founder of an organization called Climate Healers. And his definition of sustainability is based on ahimsa. 
And it's one that I deeply resonate with. And he states that compassion for all creation is infinitely sustainable. And anything yes. less than that is, is not. And yeah. so now I realize that status quo, our culture has a completely different definition of sustainable, which just means yeah. taking less in a supposedly more responsible manner. But I mean, we just need to look at the consciousness that's out there that just keeps perpetuating itself. And even the story that you told about that book collapse, how we just keep doing the same things over and over again as a population. We keep taking too much and then collapsing and taking too much and collapsing. Here yeah. we're at that same stage again. And now there's seven and a half billion people of us and we're all consuming the planet. And even if we did take less and even if we were more responsible, whatever that means, it's still too much. So mm -hmm. my belief is that when Silesh, you know, gave his definition of what sustainability means that he really nailed it because his definition is not based on separation from the natural world. So yeah. I realized that there's, there might be a few listeners out there who, who bought into what sustainable means by the status quo definition and, um, uh, you know, meaning taking less, but now I'm coming from, I'm a vegan and I'm a vegan for compassionate reasons. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on the status quo definition of sustainable. Is it even possible to have sustainable seafood based on this definition that of, of yeah. taking less, or is it just another flesh eating addiction that we justify yeah. because we don't want to give it up? I think that's a really good question. I, I was thinking this earlier, actually, when you were talking about um, how hard it is, even living in a conscious way, you still end up purchasing plastic. So mm -hmm. like no one is perfect. I still have plastic products that I buy as well, even though I've tried to cut out as many as I can. But I, and I, it, I'm vegan as well. And when I first went vegan, I was really annoyed that everything I tried to buy that was vegan was wrapped in so much plastic. So much. I, I know. It used to drive me nuts and I would go down to like the Sea Shepherd ships. Well, I used to, I helped a lot on the Sea Shepherd boats when they were in Sydney and I'd just go and help out with like painting and cleaning and just getting the ships ready to go back down to Antarctica. And I would go down there and they would all have their coffee in plastic cups and I would get so angry and I never achieved anything, but I used to like shout at people and I would try really hard <laughs> to be rational about it and I'd be like, oh my God, but this is, this is the people that should be doing the most difference. And it's like I've worked with NGOs and it was the same thing, like working on marine campaigns and people would turn up with plastic cups and plastic water bottles and then we'd have Christmas lunches and they would serve prawns and I was like, oh my God, this is not, yes, yeah, it's not sustainable. It makes you crazy. <laughs> oh, it just drives me nuts. And I think... I don't, you can't go too far in any one direction. Like, even though I'm vegan, like I sometimes eat eggs from my friend's chickens because I know that their chickens live outside. And so I'll eat their eggs. And I think you can't say black and white, this is the rule. But I think you can definitely say that some things are wrong and some things are right. And I think people inherently know. Mm -hmm. So I find often when I tell people, like, I don't want to be one of those vegans that goes around and instantly introduces myself as like, I think the whole label even of vegan can be really alienating a lot of the time. Totally. But yeah. if people say, oh, like, do you want this sausage sandwich? And I say, oh, no, it's okay. Like, I don't eat meat. Then often people instantly go on the defensive and they'll be like, oh, well, I eat it because of this and you should blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of that is people defending their own choices because inherently they know there's something wrong with what they're doing. Exactly. Maybe. Like, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it, like humans are so, our brains are incredible. We're almost so good at justifying any choices that we want to make. So for years, I still ate meat. For years, I still ate seafood. And 
I could justify it perfectly to myself. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, no, like none of those excuses made any sense. And I think the more you learn and the more you start questioning things, like for me, it became to the point where I couldn't continue eating animals, knowing what I knew about how the farming industry is impacting the whole planet as a whole. (laughs) Including the oceans. Yeah. And then also, yeah, just everything. And once you start learning it, you can't keep justifying those decisions. So I think sustainable seafood is the same thing. I think a lot of people justify it to themselves by saying what they're doing is sustainable. I personally think there's no such thing as sustainable seafood in the current way that we're living. I do have a lot of friends who spear their own fish. And I think if people do choose to eat seafood, I think going out and choosing the fish that you want to eat and shooting it yourself is going to be the most sustainable thing. I personally wouldn't do it though. I think it's better not to eat any animals. Um, (laughs) partially because I think they're amazing and my friends and I don't want to eat them, but also for a whole lot of sustainability reasons and pollution reasons. Um, But I think at the end of the day, everyone is on their own journey and nothing I say is going to convince anyone else to go vegan or not go vegan. I think that, or hopefully it'll start them thinking at least and start a conversation with themselves. But I have never found that I've been able to convince someone to change or not change. It's really a personal decision. But I think that starting that, consciousness and starting that questioning of decisions is what gets people there in the end so I know with me I knew a lot of really angry vegans who would just who was so scary about everything that I was like I could never do that they're so intense and then I realized that it wasn't about identifying with a label or choosing to do something I don't know it wasn't it wasn't about a label it was about saying well I don't want to eat another animal I don't want to have to take that animal's life when I can eat some vegetables instead and I think it's the same with seafood like we, we don't we don't need to eat it so why mm. eat it in this current state of the world where 90% of our large fish are gone why does anyone want to contribute to that problem mm-hmm. and also a lot of the labeling with sustainable seafood is not ideal so if you are going to keep eating seafood there's no way of knowing that you're not adding to the problem of overfishing and destroying our oceans and that you're not eating a bunch of chemicals essentially so like farmed fish most fish eat fish, so farmed fish are eating a bunch of other fish and it's just moving the problem around the food chain. Mm. They also have a lot of problems with diseases being introduced to wild populations. Um, different species, like there's just, I can't think of any example of sustainable seafood that would be justified enough for me to eat it. Like dolphin-friendly tuna kills thousands of seabirds, thousands of sharks, thousands of turtles. Like there's no, there's no good seafood. There's no good excuse for eating an animal at all. I totally agree. And, you know, and a lot of these killing methods are so indiscriminate. It's, it's like, I mean, you're just pointing that out. You're highlighting that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I totally agree with you about the whole vegan label. I mean, that's um, for the longest time, it was my identity. And I can totally relate to the whole angry vegan thing. Because once, once we know the reality of the world, I mean, it's, it would be, um, I think you'd be, you'd have a dead heart to not be outraged at what's going on in the world. But it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is do we choose to hang on to that or do we choose to move through that and use that and and transform that into action for, for creating inspiration? Like again, using this, this conversation that you and I are having right now as an example Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, having moved through that angry phase and getting to a point where I feel like, for me, I personally feel like I've gone beyond vegan because I feel like vegan is an essential part in reclaiming our, um, like getting spiritual now. Like it, it's an essential part of reclaiming our essential whole nature and living ahimsa. 
Yeah. And, and you know, it's just like, it's just, it's who we authentically are in our souls before we were conditioned to be these, you know, yeah. apex predator, consumptive human beings. Exactly. So, um, so for me, I look at it that way. It's, it's not, it's no longer my identity. It's an essential part of my identity, but it's not the single soul part of my identity. I consider myself more of somebody who really just wants to see a cultural evolution. I really want to see us evolve beyond this consumptive phase and really yeah. reclaim who we authentically are, which is essentially what you and I are talking about is, yeah. is getting back to that, that core essential state that loves the earth naturally. So we don't have yeah, to fall exactly. in love with the earth again. We just remember that we always have yeah. been, we, we do love the earth because we're a part of the earth. We're part of the stars. Exactly. We're part of all of it. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about fishing because you brought up spearfishing. And yeah. now obviously with, with uh, when people think of overfishing, they think of the trawler fishing, the, those giant mm -hmm. nets that just scoop up everything in their path. And obviously, I mean, that's causing the greatest damage. It's not only causing damage to the, the, uh, to, to fish and to all marine life, it's causing damage to, to the seabed and to, to coral reefs and to, to the whole ecosystem, the, the whole aquatic ecosystem. And so obviously we think about that when we think about overfishing, but I can personally tell you countless stories of small scale fishing, you know, just from people who are going out on a Sunday afternoon to, to fish for the afternoon. I have seen seagulls caught in fishing line. I've seen, um, dead birds hanging from, from fishing line, you know, when they cast their, their, uh, what do you call those things? Their poles, their fishing rods. Yeah. When they cast, <laughs> I don't fish. So when they yeah. cast their, their rods, they'll, you know, sometimes the, um, the fishing line will get caught up in a tree if they're, if they're standing under a tree and they just leave it up there. And I've seen dead birds hanging from, from this fishing line. I've also seen aquatic animals such as river otters, you know, with fishing lures embedded in their bodies. And I know people who've walked along beaches, bare feet who get impaled by carelessly tossed hooks. So I think as long as we take from the earth and we, we just naturally cause damage on, on a wide scale without yeah. thinking. So not just to a targeted species, but to so many more. So you know, it goes back to what is true sustainability. And I personally do believe that it's compassion for all life and yeah. what we've been talking about. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think I've yeah seen similar things with, I do a lot of bird rescue and we get a lot of pelicans, especially like tangled up in the lines and seagulls. And it's just horrible to see. And you just think it's not necessary like then we can live in a side. We can grow all our own vegetables. Is something that more people should really be doing. But we can even just buying our own vegetables. Like we don't need to be doing these harmful activities if we can be choosing this path of not harming anything instead. So I think that's what it comes down to. Like why? Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's habit. Maybe it's just because we're taught that that's an acceptable thing to do. We're just used to it. But I think mm -hmm. oh, it's just people not questioning it. Because as soon as you question it and you think that's it, all right? Why am I making this decision? Then you, of course, you're going to choose the path that's not going to harm anything. Like over something that either definitely or could potentially harm something. Like it just makes a lot more sense to choose that path. And I think that's why it's all so connected really with the plastic pollution and the overfishing and all of the problems in the world, that choosing whether or not to eat animals, everything is all connected because it just comes down to questioning your decisions and thinking about how they're going to have an impact. And as soon as you do that, I think most people fundamentally at heart are good people. I don't think there's evil people out there. I think mm -hmm. people are just 
brought up in a certain way and taught. So like I grew up in a house where we all fished and we ate meat. My dad still doesn't know how I survived without meat. When I told him I was going vegan, he said, oh, my friend's daughter's got that. Like, <laughs> he, he still doesn't believe in climate change. Like we're really, really different. Wow. And I brought up like that. And I complete, like I grew up in a small farming town. And I completely understand how that mentality works. But I think it's also um, just stopping and questioning it that changed how I live. Once you start questioning those decisions, then that's, yeah, you naturally start following that path. It's just starting to question things and realise that the way you've been brought up is not the right way. There is maybe no right way. It's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think especially with eating animals. Like I, when I started questioning it, I was like, okay, so I'll eat a chicken but I'm not going to eat a pigeon and I'll eat a fish but I won't <laughs> eat a dolphin. Like why do we have all these just completely made up rules? And then when I started exactly. questioning, okay, well, actually I don't want to eat any of them so I'm just going to stop. <laughs> It makes no sense at all. It, it just, it's, yeah. it's really kind of crazy. And, you know, yeah. I went through the same thing and I went vegetarian at 12 years old and I was at odds with my father. And I've had this conversation a few times on this show, but he was, he played professional football, which is different here. Like football, I think in Australia is soccer, right? Is that what we call soccer? We, yeah, we have soccer and then football is like our rugby, like NFL and stuff but was your okay, football okay. your football is like the one with the padded shoulders yeah and, yeah 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 that's but, it that, yeah. <laughs> okay so he played for the Canadian <laughs> professional Canadian football league and so he came from an era where before every game he would eat a huge steak that was his big thing and yeah. so for me as a competitive swimmer he passed that on to me that wisdom on to me is that before every swim meet I would have to eat a big steak and I fought him tooth and nail on that because inherently I just, I didn't want to eat animals. Like I would see a yeah. steak and I didn't, I didn't um, connect it with a cow at that time, but I just felt like it was wrong. Because I feel like as kids, this goes back to your kid conversation. I feel like as kids, we intuitively know, but then we have the, authorita or th uh, the authoritative conditioned parents looming over us saying, you have to do this, you have to do this. And then eventually we just kind of shut down our intuition and we buy into it. And that's how it happens. It's just like, we're mm -hmm. just conditioned. And then it's yeah. this, this self-perpetuating cycle of, <laughs> of separation consciousness that just keeps us trapped in this consumptive cycle. Mm -hmm. So, uh, <clears throat> and then I, you know, we fought, we fought, but eventually he gave in because he knew that I wasn't going to give up, but it wasn't an easy childhood. Uh, and, and I think that there's very few kids who are willing to do that or, yeah. I mean, who knows what the consequences are. The whole an eating animals thing. It's like, it is wrong. And we know that. And we know that when we're kids and we know that in our hearts all the time, it never leaves. It's just that we've been enculturated to believe otherwise. And we choose yeah. that because it's easier, because it follows along with what everybody else is doing. So when we go against the flow of consciousness, like what you and I are doing, it makes it a little more challenging, but also it depends, you know, like if we're, if we come at it from a more positive viewpoint, then people are kind of curious to know, well, why, why are you so happy? And why are you so healthy? And you know, why, you know, I know you're doing this and it's different. Um, but I'm curious about it and it's just, it's our approach. So if we come from anger, then we're just going to cause more division. But if we just come from, Hey, this feels good and it feels more in alignment, then people 
it, it invites curiosity and invites conversation. Again, it, it goes back to critical thought again. It invites critical yeah. thought. And people getting there on their own. They're questioning you and they're changing their point of view on their own. I think that's Exactly. The that's so they shift. feel empowered. Yeah. They feel empowered. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I have a couple more questions. Um, I've been reading a lot about, well, actually today I, I read, uh, I don't really, I don't read the mainstream news because it's just too, well, I don't, probably don't need to tell you. It's just, <laughs> just such a downer. But um, it, the, there's one website that I go to every morning. It's the Weather Network here. And I'm sure you guys probably have something similar in Australia, but it's the Weather Network. I just want to see, is it going to be raining today or what's the case? Well, how, how cold is it? How warm is it? And, but it, there's always little snippets of news that are related to weather. And today, this morning, I, um, I woke up and there was, a, there was a little snippet of news that there was 23 million uh, salmon were, were died in Chile today because of some uh, massive algae bloom. And yeah. I, I mentioned it earlier, you know, I've seen the red tides here and they're really they're really terrifying. And I was speaking to a friend uh, just a couple of days ago who's in Florida. And she said that the red tides there or the algae blooms have been, they've been um, more longstanding and bigger than they ever have been. Like she's noticing them more and more and more and that there's more mass fish die-offs. And I know that in Florida, there um, uh, there was an article recently about millions of starfish washing ashore dead because of these algae blooms. So I'm curious to know about, I want to know your thoughts about these mass animal die-offs that we're reading more about. And there was another one recently up in Alaska, there were like 8,000 seabirds that washed up and they, they, uh, the researchers say that it's a mystery. They don't really know what it is that's causing that. Now I suspect that you probably have an idea about this. Well, I think that's, what's interesting. You say like at the end of the day, Possibly we'll never say it's exactly because of this reason, but it's so symptomatic of what we're doing to the earth as a whole that we're getting more mass animal die-offs. Like clearly that's showing that our system is starting to fall apart a little bit, even if we can't nail down exactly why it's happening. Like as a big picture, that's pretty terrifying yeah. having all these mass animals dying off. Um, I know with the red tides especially, there's a lot of problems basically because the ocean's getting out of kilter. So if we're... Like we have problems with it here, like you get a lot of runoff, especially from farms and things like that, and the extra nutrients feed up the algae and then you get these algae blooms and it basically takes all the oxygen out of the water and everything else dies off. So the farm runoff and the pollutant runoff is a big cause of those. But also just if if you just think about like back to basic biology lessons with your food chain and everything, just if you're taking parts out of that, the system's getting out of balance. So it's Mm -hmm. like the reason the sharks are so important and the reason like we're here, we've been having a lot of jellyfish blooms and in Japan, this is a really big problem. And a lot of the reason for that is because we've taken out the apex predators. So we've taken out the top of the food chain. So I I dropped this statistic in earlier, but I think it's an important one to just keep coming back to that 90% of our big fish are gone. So 90% of our sharks and large fish have been taken out of the oceans and we're currently killing at least 100 million sharks every year bluefin tuna are critically endangered so we've wiped out all these big predators we've just completely fished them to the brink to, of extinction and passed it in a lot of cases so because we've upset that balance in the ocean how the system functions you end up with these smaller predators or small animals not the predators these smaller animals kind of taking over so mm-hmm. that's why you get the jellyfish blooms and the algal blooms and the bacteria and things taking over and it's because 
the system's out of check, it's out of balance. So it's like if you went to Africa and you killed off all of the lions, you can imagine like, the deers are going to, the populations will explode because there's lots of grass for them to eat, but then they're going to eat everything and all the populations are going to crash and there's, there's just no way to predict exactly what will happen because there's so many little factors influencing every part of what goes on in the ocean. But if we look at what's happened so far, like in Japan, we've taken out all the big fish and now it's just all jellyfish. So... <laughs> Like we know that it's not going to be a good outcome, essentially. So, yeah, it's basically very symptomatic of how the planet is out of whack. Uh, the birds that I research um, with Dr. Jen Lavers, so she's based down in Utah, and she studies the shearwaters or the mutton birds. Do you get many of those up in Canada? We get a lot of them in Australia. Mm, I don't know them. I'll have to look them up. Yeah, yeah they're pretty cute. So they're just these beautiful seabirds. They're kind of like a petrel. They, they're really incredible. So they're born in burrows. The parents actually dig a burrow and they nest under the ground in like a, a metre to three metre long burrows. And the chicks stay in the nest for about 90 days. And then when they hatch or when, they, when they're big enough to fly, they've got all their feathers They'll actually spend about the next seven years just at sea. They won't go back to land. So as soon as they leave, they just fly around the world for years. And then eventually they, even when they're adults, they migrate really long distances. So the ones we have nesting in Australia, they feed up in Russia. Um, they feed off Sri Lanka. They feed off Japan. They feed all around the world. So they travel massive distances. And Jen looks at these birds and how they're being impacted by plastic pollution. So the birds are foraging in the ocean. There's a lot less fish for them to eat. There's a lot more plastic. So a lot of the time they're eating plastic. For the adults, this is a problem for many reasons. Like it introduces chemicals to the food chain. It takes up room in their stomach that could be used for food and so they get less nutrients and um, often they'll starve to death. It can cause internal ruptures and bleeding. Um, but for the chicks, it's even more of a problem because the adult seabirds occasionally can poop out some of the plastic but for the chicks, they, they can't do that. So they just basically fill up with plastic until they starve and die. So Jen found one bird two years ago. It was 80 days old, so it's never left its nest. It's just been fed by its parents going out and foraging and bringing back food. And um, she found it dead, chopped it open, and inside its stomach was uh, over 300 pieces of plastic. Oh, my God. So that's all it had inside it, just plastic. And this is the equivalent of you or I, a normal person, having about 10 kilos of plastic in our stomach. So it's just huge amounts. And this obviously, it, it may kill them. If it doesn't kill them, then it massively impacts their health. And even if there's no real external impacts, they look by maybe they're slightly less fit, maybe they have slightly more chemicals in their body. There's links to them growing up with a slightly shorter wingspan. All of these tiny little effects really impact a bird that travels hundreds of thousands of kilometres at sea. So the shearwaters, for example, naturally have mass die-off. So it is something that does happen naturally sometimes in nature. However, it used to happen maybe once every 10, 15 years, we think. Now it's happening every year. So that every year, around the same time in Australia, we have these mass die-offs where the beaches are just covered with dead shearwaters and they wash up on our beaches. And this is probably because they have less food to eat they have more plastic to eat. They have the chemicals going in from the plastic. There's so many different factors that are making it just that much harder for these animals to survive. And especially in the ocean, it's such a, not a hard, like a harsh environment, I guess. Like there's a, it's, it's not an easy place to live. Like anyone who spent a lot of time at sea will know that it can be really gnarly. Like you get crazy weather, you get insane swells and currents and these birds are out foraging for months at a time sometimes to find patches of food and what we're doing is making those environments even more harsh which pushes a lot of these animals that have evolved just to live on the brink of where they can 
-hmm. and now we're pushing it too far. So it's the same with what's happening with reefs. Like they can live within a certain temperature range, but we're pushing it just that bit too far that a lot of the reefs are dying off. Like there's just, we're making it that little bit harder. And I think that's what's responsible for a lot of these mass die-offs. So we're just messing with the system in enough ways that these animals that used to get by and survive now just can't do it and a lot of them are dying off Mm. because of a whole range of ways that we're currently messing with what they depend on to survive. Yeah. And there's like, I'm seeing more and more, uh, information coming to me. Sea turtles, they've been dying off on mass too. I've been seeing, yeah. uh, you know, articles, um, in Mexico, in Hawaii, I'm sh- it's all over the place and whales too. Whales have been washing up yeah. in, in Europe. Yeah. The whales, I think a lot of it is because I've heard a lot of it's because of a lot of uh, like underwater acoustics. Oh, right. Yes. There's another problem. Yeah. That's a really terrifying one as well because you just don't see it. But they're essentially exploding things under the water to make, to fracture under the water and to test under the water. And it's basically like whales and dolphins have incredible senses of hearing and they're making hugely loud noises right next to them and it shatters their eardrums, it causes internal bleeding, it deafens them, it changes their feeding patterns. Like there's so many ways, ways that it messes with the way that these animals live. And so, yeah, I think that's responsible for a lot of the whale and dolphin die-offs. Even just like in Sri Lanka, they had big dolphin die-offs and I was there because of dynamite fishing. So in a lot of these places, it's really common to just throw dynamite onto the reef and then everything dies and floats to the surface and it's really easy to collect. And yeah, it's it's really, it's no wonder that a lot of animals are having mass die-offs really if you look at all of the ways that we're currently messing with their home and, and what they depend on. So, okay. So just to wind things down, you are, you're so passionate and you, you also exude a lot of, uh, there's an inner joy about you. I mean, listeners, I get the benefit of Skype, but you have an inner joy that you're really exuding and I can feel it. And (laughs) your passion is totally palpable. I am so excited because like, I love being with passionate people. As a passionate person myself, it's just so exciting to be with somebody else who's so passionate. And you and I are both very aware of the critical state of the oceans. You even more so because you have immersed yourself in it. You've, you've made it your life's work. So what are your thoughts on, on where you're going to go next? And what are your thoughts on where we're going to go next? Big question. Big questions <laughs> to end with. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, I'm, you have to look into a magic crystal ball right now. Okay. All right. Looking into my magic crystal wall. Tap into your intuition. Yeah. (laughs) I think where I'm going to go next is probably just further down this path of figuring out what I can do to make a difference. I think just keeping on trying out different ways of obviously living in a way that I can be most sustainable in my own way personally, but also seeing what I can do to influence other people to try and reconnect to the planet and fall back in love with it and want to protect it. So in the short term, that involves doing all this research and seeing what I can learn about the South Pacific and people eating plastic-filled fish. Uh, so that's the next year or so for me. Um, but also, I don't know, just keep doing what I'm doing and trying to talk to people and start them thinking and start them on that journey. Just spend a lot of time outside <laughs> is what I'm going to be doing. And I think in a broader sense, I'm still maybe just because I choose to be, but I'm still really hopeful that we can move in a positive direction. And I think that there's more of a change happening and more people are starting to look as humans, not as 
above or apart from the planet and not as just consuming but as being a functioning part of that planet that gives back and more of a caretaking role for the planet. So us being here and using these incredible skills we have of intelligence and being able to communicate so well with each other and all these incredible gifts we have as people to work together to protect this planet that we're a part of. So I'm confident that at least the little circles I'm moving in, people are moving in that direction and becoming caretakers and using their own skills. I think that's a really important thing, like being a person who, like you don't have to be a marine biologist and a scientist to protect the ocean. So like you can work in advertising but use those amazing skills you have of convincing people to buy things in a positive way and influencing to buy the right things, you know, or you could be in, I don't know, you could, like I've got a friend who she has a husband who's in construction and she got him everyone at the work site used to bring plastic bottles to work and she got him to get a water refill station and give everyone a reusable bottle and now everyone at his construction site has reusable drink bottles. Just little things like that, like everyone can do something different in their house, in their workplace, in their family, in their community, whether it's just making changes in their own life or influencing a whole section of community. Like if you run a community market, then you can make it plastic bag free. There's there's so many cool initiatives. Like Nicole maybe told you about boomerang bags. Yes, that's awesome. They yeah, like it's such an amazing concept, just getting recycled fabric, making some bags and sharing them with you. Like there's so many things people can do. It's not limited. Like I get emails all the time from people saying, I love the ocean. Should I be a marine biologist? What can I do to protect it? And I think the only thing I can tell people is just do what you love and follow what you're passionate about and do what you can do. Like look at what's happening and find that gap where you can fit in and make a difference, I think is the only thing that you can do. And I think people are doing that more and more. So I'm positive that we, at the end of the day, I don't really want to save this way of life that we have. So I'm not that bothered if civilization collapses, but I think, <laughs> I think that we can live within this system and still have a really beautiful positive existence and do what we can so I think that's hopefully where everything's going to keep moving towards in the future I, at the end of the day even if it's not all we can change is ourselves so if we're all doing what we can in our own conscious way then that's enough <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth that's exactly the way I feel too I feel like right now I want to I want to see the collapse I actually feel viscerally I feel like a collapse is imminent and I don't yeah. know what that means I don't know whether it's economic ecologic whether it's whether it's both, but I want to see this collapse. I want to see the end of oil. I want to see the end of banks. I want to see the end of all of it. And I know it's going to be really chaotic and probably really violent and ugly, but as we create this new nervous system, this new root system for a, a, a foundation, a, a new foundation for a world that's more aligned with um, what lives in our hearts, mm -hmm. I feel like that's where there's the potential for a miracle. And, yeah. you know, whoever's left, the meek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Whether that includes humans is up in the air. Who knows, right? It could just be jellyfish. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> even if it is, jellyfish is super amazing. So it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even if it is too late, like I said earlier, it, it makes such a huge difference to live a life as if it makes a difference, as if it does matter. Yeah. As and if it's it not too late. Just go, oh, well, screw it. Like, I can't make a difference. So I'm just going to go and get a normal, boring job in an office and buy exactly. a TV and spend all my nights watching reality TV and sitting, not doing anything. Like, that would be really boring. I'd rather just do this life where I'm trying to make a difference and have a really good time doing it. And meet <laughs> people and have really good adventures. <laughs> That's it. The coolest people are doing this stuff, including you. 
So yeah. thank you so much for, for being a part of this. Thank you so much for just for saying yes to, to your passion and to your heart and for loving the earth so much. I love speaking with people who love the earth. I feel so connected, <laughs> even though you and I are like across the world from each other, it doesn't feel that way. So thank you. Yeah, totally. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great talking to people, yeah, especially across the world and remembering that there's just people everywhere thinking the same way and doing what they can. It's really exciting to remember. Well, there you have it. Lots and lots of food for thought in today's very important episode. And I've created an extensive show notes section for Alice on my website at debozargo.com backslash 99. And there you can find links to her website, the video of Henderson Island that we spoke of, as well as other resources that we discussed. And I promise to have more important conversations like these in upcoming shows. As I mentioned at the very beginning, I'm feeling the collapse happening even faster now. And I honor my intuition. It's always right. And I can honestly say that I've never felt this before. And uh, it's, it's quite profound. So I'm going to be following the impulse within my soul towards the conversations that need to be had in today's rapidly imploding world. And if my willingness to go to these truth-filled depths is meaningful to you, and you're not afraid to go there with me, you don't choose denial, you don't choose to dig your heels in, and you need to know that you're not alone and that you're not going crazy in this increasingly insane world, then I highly, highly encourage you to support my work because your support shows me that what I do matters. There are a number of ways that you can support my work. And one of the best ways is by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash unplug podcast. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash unplug podcast, all one word. You can also buy some of my t-shirts on my website. You can get your copy of my groundbreaking book, Unplug, which is continuing to change hearts and minds globally. And you can find that on Amazon, Kobo, iBooks, and also on my website. And alternatively, you can leave a review of the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already done so. And you can also send me an email so that I know that you're out there just giving a damn and spread the word. You're not alone with your feelings for where we're at in today's world. And the more who know about this podcast, the more we unite. And community, caring community is where it's at more than ever now. And that is how I end yet another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads no longer make sense of it all. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this really solid, important conversation. This means the world to me, even if it is too late, especially if it is too late. The fact that you're still willing to be engaged and activated means so much. So thank you. And remember... Live with passion, live with purpose, 
change the world. 